everyone. I'm Janet B. I'm recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Um, welcome here. If any of you are new, we record the um, workshop part, which is about 30 to 40 minutes. I'll just yammer on and on and on. And then um, we'll shut the recording off and take questions, which can be on the topic we discussed tonight or anything pertaining to recovery. So we are on chapter nine of the big book, page 122, The Family Afterwards. And these chapters um, really are the end of step 12, where it says, practice these principles in all our affairs. The chapter we did last week, Two Wives, was about how to practice these principles in relationship with someone who's an active alcoholic. This chapter is about practicing these principles in our families. And next week, we'll do Two Employers, which is practicing these principles in our workplace. So lots of really good stuff here. I counted four different types of miracles they talk about in this chapter and a whole bunch of spiritual principles to practice. So let's get going. Top of 122, it says that, okay, the wives, um, they called them women folk back then, have suggested certain attitudes that someone may take with someone in recovering. And then they say this line, perhaps they created the impression that he is to be wrapped in cotton wool and placed on a pedestal. Successful readjustment means the opposite. What does that mean to wrap someone in cotton wool and place them on a pedestal? Well, if I'm placing someone on a pedestal, I'm making an idol out of them. And if I'm wrapping them in cotton wool, then my idol is that nothing is going to happen to that person. And if we think about it, um, the best definition of idolatry I've heard is putting a person, place, or thing ahead of God. And isn't that sometimes what we do with our family members? If we have someone who maybe is new in recovery, we're focused, we're so focused on making sure that person doesn't fall, that we keep our eyes off, what is God's will for me? Um, so they're just cautioning us that we're not supposed to be overly protective or overly worshipful of another person. And it tells us all members of the family should meet upon the common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. And it tells us why it's hard. Because we, I, am likely to have fixed ideas about how the family should run. So what are my fixed ideas, right? That's something that I should look at. So for instance, for me, I had a fixed idea that my kids, you know, once they turned 18, should still want to go to church every Sunday. And that when they came home, you know, for breaks from college, we would go to church together every Sunday. Now, nothing wrong with that, right? That's like a nice thing. But um, there's a difference between having a desire and having a demand. And I saw when I turned it into a demand, it created chaos. And the next paragraph tells me why, dagger to my heart. Is not each, is it not the unhappiness that this creates? Because each wants to play the lead. Is not each trying to arrange the family show to his liking. So 
So I have to be careful of that. So for instance, if my son um, had a messy room, now someone might say, well, I have a right as a mom, you know, to demand that my 16 year old have a good, have a neat room. And maybe I do, but I also have to think at what price? And again, not telling anyone how they should raise their kids. But for me, there came a point where it's the arguing over the room was creating so much chaos. And at what price? And really, what's my goal? My son is now in college in ROTC. He's going into the military. They'll teach him how to keep a clean room. I don't have to. I have to have a clean relationship with him. So again, all I have to do, I'm just giving you examples from my own life, not telling anyone they shouldn't make their kids go to church or make their kids make their bed. But when I place my happiness on whether or not my kids or my husband or anyone does a certain thing and I'm going to make them do it, then I'm in trouble. And my kids now, I have no idea if they went to church this past Sunday because I don't ask them anymore and we're all happier for it. And we have a great relationship. Um, and I have no idea if my son makes, my, makes his bed and I could care less. Um, okay. So on page 123, they say, we're gonna tell you some of the obstacles a family will meet and show you how they can be avoided and converted to good use for others. So these are the obstacles that get in the way of having healthy family relationships. And one thing they say is at the end of that paragraph, today's life is measured against that of other years. And when it falls short, the family may be unhappy. Um, I have a note in my margin, expectations are resentments under construction. It's from Herb Kay. Isn't that cool? Expectations are resentments under construction. And in the next paragraph, they're talking about the wife of a guy who was an alcoholic and now he's in recovery. And they say, okay, this wife demands that her husband bring back the good old days immediately. And she's not just blaming her husband, she's blaming God. God, they believe, almost owes this recompense on a long overdue account. So that's something I need to ask myself. Do I feel entitled, owed by God? God, I do all this work helping other people. I should never get sick. I, my car should never have a flat tire, right? I can't live like that. Or to my kids, I paid for you to go to private school. Therefore, you owe me to take out the trash. Mm -mm. I paid for the private school. I help other people because I believe it's God's will for me. And it's my gratitude because God pulled me out of the gutter of compulsive eating and bulimia. God owes me nothing. My kids owe me nothing. Um, Page 124, it tells us that, you know, we shouldn't think that we can be happy by forgetting the past. And they go even further and they quote Henry Ford, um, who says, experience is the thing of supreme value in life. 
And they say, yeah, he's half right. It's true, our experience, even our bad experience, is of supreme value only if we're willing to turn the past to good account. How do I do that? How do I make all my bad things good? And it gives me the formula. We grow by our willingness to face and rectify errors and convert them into assets, to face it, to admit it, right? To God, to myself and another human being, very humbling to rectify my errors, right? What good is it if I steal $50 from your wallet and I go and I confess it to God and another human being and I never give you the $50 back. So we need to rec rectify it and convert it into an asset. How do I do that? By telling others our stories. If we tell others about the rotten things we've done, um, first, it forms a bond with a newcomer. They can relate to us and then we can be a safe place. I've talked about how I, um, when I was in the illness, I faked being raped. I actually like went to the hospital and got a fake rape exam. And wouldn't you know, I got a sponsee and she said, you know what, I did that too. I faked a rape. And so she could feel safe telling me that because she'd already heard me talk about how I had done the same thing. And they go on and they tell us, um, showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. So not only is it a way to be helpful, but it helps me. It's telling me that showing others how, yes, I used to be like that and I'm not is the thing that makes my life worthwhile. In the next paragraph at the bottom of 124, it tells us um, a miracle in this program. They talk about the miracle of reconciliation, that this program heals relationships. Inevitably, when we go and confess something wrong we've done, it may not be that day, but as we keep doing that, you know, the people in our lives start doing that too. I saw that um, with my son, he would say, mom, I can't believe you did fill in the blank. And if I would point out that fill in the blank wasn't anything bad, you know, what would happen? Nothing, or it would escalate. But if I said, you know, Dan, I'm, I'm really sorry. I didn't realize that fill in the blank bothered you. Inevitably, he would say, oh, no, you're good. Don't worry about it. So it's just ways to, to de-escalate. And they tell us, um, 125, if someone makes an amends to us and we accept it and forgive, unless some good and useful purpose is to be served, past occurrences shouldn't be discussed. So once I forgive someone, I don't have a right to bring it up again. It's done. Just like I don't want them to bring it up to me. Later on on that page, it says another principle we observe carefully. Again, so this is an instruction for us. They're about to tell us a principle that if I want to stay in recovery, I need to observe carefully. And it says, we don't relate intimate experiences of another person unless we're sure 
he would approve, right? That just means we keep a confidence. If someone tells us something about what's going Five, on. Five, three, six. Unless um, there's a good reason for it. Um, and there's really very few good reasons. We keep our mouths shut. We don't say anything. We don't repeat what other people tell us. Um, even under the guise of, can I ask you to pray for so-and-so? Here's what's happening in her life. We don't do that. And another principle there, um, although they, they don't say it's a principle, says we alcoholics or compulsive eaters are sensitive people. It takes some of us a long time to outgrow that serious handicap. So what does that mean, sensitive? You know, I used to think it meant like, oh, I like poetry. Um, no, sensitive means that I get my feelings hurt easily. And I used to be like that. You know, if someone would say to me, I don't like your outfit, I would feel like sick to my stomach. Um, and they tell us that's a handicap. Why? Because it's pride. If I'm sensitive, it means someone's telling me something about myself that I don't like. And now, I mean, I still don't like it. I, I don't think anyone likes it, but I can force myself to say, okay, this person's giving me information. I should look at it. It may not be true, right? Not all feedback we get is accurate, but I need to look at it. And if it's not true, okay. But if it is true, now is a chance to grow. And they tell us that sensitivity, that pride is a handicap. It's a handicap to our spiritual growth. Um, I'm going to flip over to page 127. Um, and again, I'm just I only have like 30, 40 minutes. So I'm just kind of doing highlights, but I would just encourage everyone to dig deep because this is a rich, rich chapter. Um, so top of 127, it says the family must realize that dad, though marvel marvelously improved, is still convalescing. They should be thankful he is sober and able to be of this world once more. Let them praise his progress. So again, we're not going to go from binging to Mother Teresa in three days. It doesn't happen. Convalescing, we're getting better. That being said, I think we should all be able to look at ourselves when we're in recovery and look at ourselves and say, okay, six months ago, when I got resentful, I would, I would do my resentment inventory, but I would stay in resentment for three days. And then it was two days and then it was a day. And now I get over most resentments in three hours. You know, in other words, we should be able to see growth. And it tells us, let them praise his progress. And we all want to do that. We want to do it with our sponsees, with our family members, um, with our kids, right? If there's something, if there was something in my kids, I would want them to do more. When I saw them doing it a little bit, I would say, oh, that's great that you're doing whatever. Um, so we praise, everyone likes praise. It's like, it's like when you water a flower, praise just like waters our souls, not fake phony praise, but we all do something good. So it's like, the old saying that, you know, we learned 
a while ago, catch them doing something right. That's what we do. Then they give us this great formula, how to make another period's crankiness, depression, and apathy disappear. That means I can have an influence on another person's emotions. And how? It says, when I demonstrate tolerance, love, and spiritual understanding. Well, so what do the, those words mean? Spiritual understanding. That means I put myself in that person's shoes. So for instance, I've said it before, um, I had a relative who was instrumental in raising me, who was verbally abusive and just like worked night and day. And, you know, so I'm thinking like, oh, that's, you know, you'd say that's really awful. This person was like verbally abusive to you, but that person's father beat him. I didn't get beat. I just got yelled at. So in God's eyes, this person may be a saint, may be a hero. We have to have spiritually understanding. Where are these people coming from? Tolerance. That means I increase my threshold for my ability to withstand pain. I think that goes along with not being so hypersensitive. Things don't bother me so easily. And love. Well, we could talk for hours, right, about what love is. But one definition I'd read that I found helpful is love is comprised of three ingredients, loyalty, self-sacrifice, and forgiveness. Loyalty, we don't speak badly about the people to others. Self-sacrifice, we do things that are sacrificed to ourselves. And forgiveness, just like I want God to forgive me, I need to forgive the people who've wronged me. Um, another couple promises, it says later on this page, for us, material well-being always followed spiritual progress. It never proceeded. Now, I don't know about like earth people who don't have this illness. They may be able to go out and make a boatload of money without doing anything nice for anyone else. But they're telling us for us, we're supposed to concentrate on our spiritual growth first and then spiritual. And then, you know, they said financial recovery is on the way for many of us, not all of us, it's okay. It says we can't place money first. Then they continue to tell us the home has suffered a lot. In fact, more than anything else. So we have to exert himself here, which means effort. And then they tell us a cause of relapse. He is not likely to get far in any direction if he fails to show unselfishness and love under his own roof, not likely to get far in any direction. So I can't be making my phone calls, praying and meditating, having a weighed and measured food plan and being nasty to the people in my family and expect to put down the food. I have to show unselfishness and love. Page 128 at the very top, they just tell us a basic principle for family life and life. Giving rather than getting will become the guiding principles. So what does that mean? So that means 
any place I go before I go, I don't always do this, I'm, but I'm thinking this is a good thing I should start doing to think, okay, I'm walking into this situation. What can I give? So if it's a work meeting, a quick prayer, God, please show me how I can be a blessing to my work. Um, into a family relationship, what, how can I give rather than get? Maybe someone leaves a dish in the sink, I wash it without saying anything and put it away. But giving rather than getting is supposed to be our guiding principle. And of course, right? Because the roots of our illness is selfishness and self-centeredness, not sugar and flour, selfishness and self-centeredness. Page 128, they talk about, um, what about the guy who spends all his time talking about God and helping other people. And it says, they may be jealous of a God who has stolen dad's affections. While grateful that he drinks no more, they may not like the idea that God has accomplished the miracle, second miracle, right? The miracle of putting down the alcohol, putting down the food, has accomplished the miracle where they failed. They often forget father was beyond human aid. They may not see why their love and devotion didn't straighten him out. Um, I think the strongest human force is love, right? And they say, not even love could do this. This illness needs more than love. So many of us were loved quite well. Um, it doesn't do it. It says we need it and it tells us a miracle. God has accomplished the miracle. And for anyone who's new here, you know, you may think, well, I came here to see how to put the food down. And you're talking about, you know, how to get along with my husband. But they're talking about here, the idea that God has accomplished the miracle. And guys, that is what this program is all about. This program isn't about at its essence, isn't about, you know, food plans or sponsors or phone calls, is about a miracle. And this book tells us how to have a miracle. We start out admitting we're powerless over food and our lives are unmanageable and we're willing to do whatever it takes. And then we do some work to get rid of our spiritual cataracts and our prejudices so that we actually can come to believe that God can restore us to sanity. It doesn't matter if we don't believe it to start. This book tells us how we can get there. And then we decide that we're gonna turn our will and our lives over to this God who we now believe cares about us. And then we clean up our past and work to pray and meditate to get a closer relationship with this God who now we really, really know loves us. And then we help others and practice these principles in all our affairs. So if you're new, you're coming in at the tail end. Um, but just so you know, we were, this, we're almost done with the cycle of this big book. And then we just start from the beginning. And we've got plenty of recordings where we've got um, how to recover, how to find God. So um, Trisha, if you could post the link in the chat. Um, and for those of you listening, well, if you're listening, then you're already on it. Um, but at um, recoveryjam.com or recoveryjam.podbean.com, we have lots of resources for you guys. Um, so back to the book now, um, page 129. And they're really 
that there has to be balance. Dad sees that he can't suffer from a distortion of values. His spiritual growth is lopsided if it doesn't include his family obligations. So we are not supposed to just recover, divorce our husbands, hire a nanny for our kids, and spend 18 hours a day doing 12-step work. We are supposed to take care of our kids. We are supposed to go out to the movies with our husband. Like we are supposed to have a healthy, balanced family life. That being said, we may be watching a movie with our husband and we get a call from someone who says, I'm desperate, I need help, um, you know, in, in a bad way right now. And then we have to hit the pause button on the movie and go help. Um, again, not an ironclad rule, but the, the basic principle is, yes, we help other people to the point of inconvenience but we still get to have happy, useful family lives. Remember it says, if we don't, we're in trouble. Um, page 130, just because it's a pretty line and I have a heart by it in my book, says um, this dream world has been replaced by a great sense of purpose accompanied by a growing consciousness of the power of God in our lives. So look at that, you know, someone may start out just all gung-ho, head in the clouds, but we get this great sense of purpose, right? I don't know about you guys, probably because we're alike. I used to wonder, why am I here, God? What's my purpose? What's my purpose? And it tells us we get a great sense of purpose accompanied by a growing consciousness. That means whatever consciousness we have now, in three months, we should expect it to be even stronger. And what's the consciousness of? The power of God in our lives. Not just an awareness that there is a God who created the universe and may have removed my food obsession. Power of God in my life. We have come to believe he would like us to keep our head in the clouds with him. So we do a step 11 but that our feet ought to be firmly planted on earth. That is where our fellow travelers are. And that is where our work must be. Okay, so it tells us head in the clouds, time with God every day and time helping others every day. Um, page 131, they talk about compromise. When father and mother disagree, um, they have to watch for tendencies in themselves to be, um, you know, wanting to be the one in charge and come to friendly agreements. And each has to yield here and there. So again, balance and compromise. We don't always have to be right. And again, um, we can just think a principle that I made for myself when my kids were little, I just determined, I broke this rule a lot, but this was like my ideal that I wouldn't interfere with anything my husband wanted to do with the kids, like dress my little girl in overalls or um, take them to McDonald's. As long as it wasn't anything dangerous. If he had said, I think I'll leave our two-year-old to, you know, plan the front lawn while I go inside, which he never did. Then I would put my foot down. But again, compromise. Okay, you want to take them to McDonald's? I don't like them, you know, eating that stuff. 
fine. Take them when I'm not around. You know, just, I don't have to have everything my way. It talks about the role um, church, synagogue, mosque, whatever religion should play in our lives. And it says, we used to deride religious people and put them down. And says, we can be helped by these contacts. And it says, you know, if you join a place, you can be a bright spot in a congregation, a religious congregation, but it tells us what not to do, not to argue about religion. Um, I've been to many different churches. I have yet to find one where I agree 100% with everything. But, you know, I don't need to argue. People don't need to have my exact values. And it tells us um, what we can expect to find there. Make new friends and new avenues of usefulness and pleasure. Again, we are allowed to like have pleasure in our lives. We are allowed to do things that are fun but always useful, you know, we always like, we don't want so much fun at the expense of being useful. And they continue on and they say, we absolutely insist on enjoying life, right? They say, we don't believe that this life is a veil of tears, like something hard to get through. And then if we're good, maybe we'll have heaven at the end. We absolutely insist on enjoying life page 132, we try not to indulge in cynicism over the state of the nations, nor do we carry the world's troubles on our shoulders. It was a great line for me to read today, um, the world's troubles. This is the day when Russia attacked Ukraine. My children are adopted. They were born in Ukraine. So Ukraine is very special to, to my family. And I did shed a few tears today, but I am not to carry that trouble on my shoulders. So what do I do? The same thing that I do in all situations. I look to see what is God's will for me here. And the things I, that came to me, what I can do is I can pray, which I did, and I can give money, which I did. But I can't solve the problem of Russia attacking Ukraine, but I can pray and donate. Um, and I'm not cynical. It's not like, oh, well, if, you know, this, you know, person had done this 20 years ago, this never would have happened. Uh -uh. I just look to see what is my role. And they continue on. Um, that was like how we look at the world and its troubles. What about other people? It says those of us who have tried to shoulder the entire burden and trouble of others soon find we are soon overcome by them. I don't shoulder the entire burden, which means I don't take on responsibilities that shouldn't be mine. So an example might be when my kids were younger, let's say I was afraid one of them might fail a test. That's not my burden, that's their burden. Um, but if I have a friend, a fellow, a child, a parent, a spouse um, who has a burden, I don't shoulder the entire burden but I don't leave them to shoulder the entire burden by themselves either. You know, I, I help the people who God puts in my path to help again, not everyone, right. It says, then we're overcome if we try to do it all, but there's some people in my life and God shows us whose burdens am I supposed to be helping them to shoulder page 133. 
awesome line. We are sure. So this means they're sure, positive. God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. I think happy is like good circumstances, right? Like I like reading books. God wants me to have time to just cozy up and read a book. Joyous. Joyous, I think, is happy no matter what the circumstances are that I can just know that God's in charge and have a joy and free, free from the obsession. Um, and it says, we made our own misery. God didn't do it. So we don't blame God. Now, again, um, I don't want to get into um, deep, deep things about, well, what about like a three-year-old who was molested or anything like that? Clearly, that child did not make her own misery. But most of my run-of-the-mill problems where I'm not getting along with people, 100% on me. And it says, avoid the deliberate manufacture of misery. But if trouble comes, cheerfully capitalize it as an opportunity to demonstrate God's omnipotence. How do we do that? So I was thinking of a few examples. Um, there's a pastor who I heard him speak that and his daughter was severely handicapped, like so handicapped if they, I guess they couldn't leave her in a cold room at night because she couldn't even like pull a blanket over herself if she got cold. She mentally wouldn't think to do that. And they would just find her shivering in the morning. And her name was Jill. So he, that caused him to start a ministry at his church called Jill's House, where people who had handicapped children could leave their children for a weekend and get um, respite care, right? Um, Joni Erickson Tata was a regular high school girl, got in an accident and was completely paralyzed from the neck down. Um, I mean, she still can't use her hands, nothing. She started a huge ministry for handicapped people. So again, um, E. Stanley Jones was someone who the founders of AA studied. And he said, we don't just bear our troubles, we use them. How can I use whatever trouble I'm going through for the glory of God and to help others? Then they switch gears and start talking about health. Um, page 133, and this is the third miracle. We are miracles of mental health right? And of course, right on page 58, it says, once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally. And then the fourth miracle, remarkable transformations in our bodies and physically. Now, of course, they know people be, you know, extremists that we are, we might be, you know, ones to say, well, if you're really doing okay with God, then, you know, you shouldn't get appendixitis or, you know, something ludicrous like that. And they say, no, 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 we do not regard human health measures. God has abundantly supplied this world with fine doctors, psychologists, and practitioners. Don't hesitate. And they say, try to remember that though God has wrought miracles among us, we should never belittle a good doctor or a psychiatrist. You know what I love about that line, along with telling us, fine, to go to doctor, psychiatrist. Try to remember that though God has wrought miracles among us, they say it just like it's a given, right? Like we all know that God brings miracles to us. Like, yeah, that's, that's it. It's like, we all know that. 
I'm going to flip over to the last page of the chapter, page 135. And it says, whether the family goes on a spiritual basis or not, the alcoholic member must, has to, if he would recover. No matter what anyone else in my family does, I need to practice spiritual principles for me because ultimately my numero uno relationship is my one with God. And then um, they talk about a wife who nagged her husband to stop um, drinking coffee and smoking and he wasn't ready. And she, it says her intolerance finally threw him into a fit of anger and he got drunk. And of course he was wrong, right? When, if we ever pick up, it's a hundred percent our fault, right? They say, of course, our friend was wrong, dead wrong. So we can't say if you had my lousy husband, children, boss, parents, whatever, you would binge too. Uh, uh. It's always our fault. But by the same token, we don't want to do things that might cause someone else to stumble. Um, and at the bottom, they give us our three slogans. I think it's important to realize not all slogans are good. Just because something's said a hundred times doesn't make it right. For instance, keep the memory green. If I could keep the memory green, then I, every time I was about to binge, I would have said, oh, wait, Janet, if you eat one cookie, you're going to eat the whole bag and then you're going to hate yourself and you're going to gain weight. Don't do it. I couldn't keep the memory green. I had a broken memory. And we talk about that when we talk about step one. But here's some good slogans. First things first, right? Um, he, got, he wasn't drinking. His wife shouldn't have worried about the smoking. And actually that um, line comes, they got that from a line out of the New Testament. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all other things will be added to you. Seek God first, live and let live. Focus on my relationship with God. Don't worry so much about what anyone else is doing. And easy does it. I think that means to relax. If you are doing this work, the miracle will happen. And with that, I pass.